Well, good morning. Thank you for the invitation to be part of your missions conference. I'm very excited uh, to take part in this and to have a chance to fellowship with you. It's always a fun time because you get to meet people from all across the globe uh, involved in various kinds of ministries, and that's a really exciting thing for me, as I'm sure it is for all of you. My name is David Cashin. I'm a professor of intercultural and Islamic studies at Columbia International University. And uh, just a little quick advertisement here. If there's anybody here interested in undergrad or graduate studies, I will be standing at the table out in the back uh, at the end of the service today and would love to chat with you uh, about that. Let me begin with a bit of an overview of what I'd like to cover. They've given me three opportunities to work with you folks, uh, and I'm excited about that. So we're going to do three kind of quick steps through the book of Acts. And uh, today we're going to be looking at Acts 1.8, which is the fifth and final iteration of the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to kind of move from that fairly quickly to Acts chapter 10, where we're going to look at an interesting issue uh, in the life of Peter. And that will be how we uh, finish our time together here this morning. Uh, then the, uh, this evening we're going to be looking at Acts uh, chapter 15, uh, and considering uh, some of the issues that the early church struggled with. Uh, and then on Monday night, they've uh, got me coming back for a third time. And uh, there I'm going to answer a rather interesting question. And you can kind of put this in the back of your minds at this point. The question is simply this. What kind of toothbrush did Jesus use? Now, that doesn't sound like a very deep theological sort of a question, but it really has some significance. So come back on Monday night, and we're going to talk about the Jesus toothbrush. You ready for that? All right. Well, let's begin today. We're going to be looking first uh, at Acts uh, 1.8. And uh, as you know, there are two kinds of iterations of the Great Commission, two kinds of thrusts that you'll see. Uh, one kind of thrust focuses on tribes, tongues, peoples, and nations. Uh, sort of the ethno-linguistic, the cultural groupings to which Jesus sends us. And then the passage that we're looking at today has more of a geographical focus to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And I think that both of these themes are woven together in a way that's quite comprehensive, that help us to see that the gospel is something to be taken to every geographic region of the world, and also to help us to see that the gospel is meant to be taken to every cultural, ethno-linguistic, tribal, tongue, people, and nation of the world. Now, my theme for today is um, a simple question. What do you want? Now, that's Cashin's uh, abbreviated uh, version of a verse we're going to look at a little bit later on. What do you want? And in a sense, this question that we find in the Scriptures is an illustration of something I think is true of Acts 1.8. And what I think is interesting about Acts 1.8 is simply this. I don't think that the disciples understood what Jesus was saying to them. I honestly don't think they had a full capacity to figure out what does he mean 
when he gives us this commission. Now, in one sense, I think all of you understand how this works. Uh, how many of you are married? All the married folks, stick your hands up nice and hot because you're happy to be married. All right. Now, admit for me that when you stood at the altar and said, I do, to each other, did you fully understand what you were getting yourself into? Um, probably not. And frankly, I think we experience this all the time, don't you? For instance, if you decide to take in a foster child in your home, you may begin with a lot of very glowing and, and emotionally satisfying ideas about what it will be like to minister to a child who's been rejected in some senses by uh, a previous family or other situations. But it, admittedly, you don't really know what you're getting into when you take in a foster child. You're really a person taking baby steps of faith. And as you take those baby steps, you get into situations and realities that you weren't aware of at the beginning. So today, let's take a look at Acts 1.8 and see if we can see it through the eyes of the apostles. How did these words speak to them? How did they feel about them uh, when Jesus gave them? I'd like us to read this passage together in unison if we could. So would you mind? Can, can we stand up? And I hope that's large enough for you to see. Um, and let's, let's just recite this beautiful passage from Scripture together. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit is come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Amen. You may be seated. Now, why do I say that the apostles probably did not understand what this verse really meant? Well, three things I think we can see in this passage that clearly were difficult for them. The first point is, we know elsewhere in the scripture that there were about 500 people who witnessed the Lord Jesus in his resurrection. Correct? About 500. Uh, a group not too terribly much larger than this group. Right? 500 people. And you're going to reach the entire world. Something's wrong with, oh, am I, too, am I out of, do I need to use this? Somebody's giving me hand signals. I am, I am noticing that this is not properly walk, working. Uh, you, got the you know, I used to be a principal of a school, so I'm really, I can make a lot of noise with my mouth. So, uh, you know, uh, although I realize uh, if you're hearing impaired in any way, that might, might still not get through, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best. Um, so imagine, if you will, 500 people like yourselves, and you're the only Christians on planet Earth. You're the only Christians in one little place like... Trinity Presbyterian Church. And Jesus is telling you to reach the whole world. And he's actually doing it with a sort of a sense of confidence that you're actually going to pull this off. He says, you will be my witnesses. This is, this is kind of assumed that this is going to happen. Doesn't that strike you as a bit unrealistic? A little bit way beyond what is possible? So I think initially... The apostles probably had a sense of, wow, <laughs> what does he really mean? How, how is that going to happen? 
Well, there's a, a second factor that, that I would think would make them very reticent and questioning about this commission, and that is that their leader just got crucified 40 days earlier, right? Uh, they're men on the run. Uh, they're, they're wanted people. Uh, you know, the Romans have killed the leader and now they probably have some interest in getting rid of the followers as well. And it's not just the Romans they've got to be nervous about. The Jewish leadership that gave Jesus to the Romans to be crucified, they're also enemies, right? So you've got a lot of reasons to say, you know, uh, is this a realistic thing for us to do? But I want to focus on the third point because there's an even deeper issue here. The internal struggle. The internal reality that here you have a group of 500 Orthodox Jews. Right? Because all of the believers at this point in time are Orthodox Jews. Now, they can understand step one, Jerusalem. Well, of course, Orangeburg. It's, it's our hometown. It's where we live. So, okay, we can, we can reach Orangeburg. We can reach Jerusalem. And then Jesus says, Judea. And notice we're taking a further step. Well, that's kind of like South Carolina. Well, yeah, we can do that. We can reach South Carolina. We can be witnesses to Jesus in South Carolina. Then Jesus goes a step further. He says, Samaria. Now, remember, Jesus has modeled ministry to the Samaritans, hasn't he? In John chapter 4... Jesus ministers to a Samaritan woman and it's the longest conversation of Jesus with anybody in the whole New Testament. So Jesus has modeled that for his apostles. But nevertheless, that little phrase that John puts into chapter 4, you remember that phrase, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? You know, who are the Samaritans? Well, they're kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses of Judaism, right? They're, they're a group of people coming from pagan backgrounds who've adopted a little bit of Judaism to sort of, you know, make things right from the period when Israel was destroyed by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. They're kind of that group of people that got resettled in what used to be part of Israel, and they kind of adopted a few Jewish customs, but for the most part they were still pagans. And, of course, they did all kinds of things that Jews didn't like. So Jews and Samaritans don't get along. And here's a group of 500 Orthodox Jews who are followers of Jesus who are being told that this gospel will go to Samaria. Wow, that's, that's a challenge, even though Jesus had illustrated this in his own ministry. But then it's that last part that really gets to you. The uttermost parts of the earth. Now, what are the uttermost parts of the earth from a Jewish perspective of the first century for an Orthodox Jew? Well, our homeland is Israel, right? This is, this is our land. This is the land God gave to us. The uttermost parts of the earth is the land of what they would call in Hebrew the Goyim. Now, we translate that word as Gentiles, okay? But I don't think that word really carries the weight for us that the word goyim meant for an Orthodox Jew. Because who are the goyim? These are the unclean people. The world of uncleanness, the world of no knowledge of the God of the Bible. This is the place where people eat pork meat. 
Okay, I know you like your bacon and so do I. But at this stage of history, for an Orthodox Jew, bacon and pork is filth. And to eat it makes you unclean. But it's, it's worse than that. I mean, that's a minor issue compared to the fact that Gentiles, goyim, are idolaters. They worship other gods. They are committing all the sins that the Old Testament condemns. And then, not just the kosher laws, but here's kind of the symbol of it all. They're not circumcised. And you know what the Old Testament says about uncircumcised pagan dogs. In fact, these are people who are so unclean and so dirty and so filthy in your Orthodox Jewish mind that for you to go into their house makes you automatically so unclean that you need to take a bath when you're done. Do you remember when the Jews were accusing Jesus to Pilate? Do you remember where it says they were standing? They weren't inside of Pilate's house because that would have made them unclean. So they stood in the courtyard to make their accusations. And Pilate understood this is one of the Jewish things. They think of us as unclean. So I have to have a separate place where I go outside on, you know, in front of the portico to address them because they won't come into the court itself. They won't come into the house because that makes you unclean. So Jesus is saying, I want you to take this message of my redemption through the cross to the ends of the earth, to the goyim. I am sure that at this stage, this group of Orthodox background Jewish people do not understand fully what Jesus is saying. And I want to illustrate that with a second reading from the Scriptures uh, from Acts chapter 10. And I want to walk you through to a point where, G where, where uh, Peter asks that question that I suggested earlier. What do you want? Okay? Now listen carefully to this because it's really kind of an amazing story. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment, a pagan of pagans, if you will. He and all his family were devout, however, and God-fearing, they gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He said. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. At about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter! Kill and eat. 
Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and, sent, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, they arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter said to him, Get up! I am only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So, when I was sent for you, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? What do you want? What do you want? <laughs> Doesn't that strike you as a ridiculous question? What do you want? Peter has had a vision. Cornelius has had a vision. The Holy Spirit has said, go down and tell them. And Peter's gone all the way across the threshold into a pagan's house. He's become unclean in so doing. He now needs to take a bath from an Orthodox Jewish perspective. But the words that come out of Peter's mouth first, aside from saying, well, see how I've made myself unclean by coming to you here, the final word he has to say is not the gospel of Jesus, it's what do you want? You see, the penny still hasn't gone down in Peter's head. Remember at this point, the only believers on planet Earth at this stage in history are all Jews. This is the first time in world history that the followers of Jesus are going to share the message of Christ with the Goyim. And if this hadn't have happened, you wouldn't be here. Now, I realize I'm being a little hard on Peter, but I think it's true, isn't it, that the disciples at Acts 1-8 
had only a vague understanding of what Jesus was really talking about. But they were willing to take some simple steps of faith. And those steps of faith eventually take Peter to a place where for the first time he realizes, and you notice, after Cornelius essentially says, well, tell us the message. Oh, of course. It's not just that I shouldn't call you unclean. It's that I'm really supposed to tell you about Jesus. You see, he didn't get that at first. It kind of had to go through this process till he'd get to the place of saying, wow, I guess even... Gentiles can respond to the message of Jesus. Now, I'll bet you a lot of you are saying, well, that kind of stuff, you know, that was for New Testament times. That that kind of thing doesn't happen these days. Well, let me tell you a story. Uh, A number of years ago, I was doing church planting in a little town called Kaliakor, Bangladesh. And uh, I had gathered in a room with a number of other Bangladeshis, and we were sitting on the floor. We had some Bibles uh, in our laps and we were reading the Bible together there's no furniture in that part of Bangladesh you just sit on the floor on on rugs or mats and we're reading the Bible together and as we're reading there is suddenly a knock on the door so we open the door and a gentleman uh, comes in and uh, sees me sitting at the end of the room gets this huge smile on his face and pads down to the front and squats down right in front of me, and the first words out of his mouth are, what does Matthew 1.21 say? Well, that's not a question I get every day from a Muslim, and I could tell that this man was a Muslim, so not knowing what else to say, I said, well, why do you want to know? And his response is, well, Jesus told me to ask you. Jesus told you to ask, how, how did Jesus do that? You see, the previous night had been the night that they call in Bangladesh Shobiborat, the night of power. This is the night when supposedly the first chapter of the Quran came down, you know, from above. And uh, in Islam, that's how salvation is given to you. You get a, a book. You know, God doesn't come down himself. He, he sends down a book, okay? A book. Read the book. Follow the instructions. And if you can keep the instructions... Maybe God will accept you. So it's an auspicious night, and you want to pray all night long in order to get special blessings from Allah. Prayers on this night are worth prayers on 10,000 other nights combined. So, wow, pray all night. So the the whole idea was you you stay up all night and, and you pray, but there is a condition, as there always is in Islam, don't fall asleep. Because you see, if you fall asleep, it's no soup for you, right? <laughs> so, unfortunately, Syed Shahadot Hussain, was the fellow's name, uh, his spirit was willing, but his flesh was weak. And about 3 o'clock in the morning, he fell asleep. And as he slept, he had a dream. And in the dream, first his father came to him. Now, his father uh, was predeceased, so this was a little bit like, whoa, daddy's coming back from the dead. So, of course, he did what any good Muslim man would do. He got down on his knees and he touched his father's feet. This is called the pronam kora. It's the way of showing your deepest respect. And then he looked up into his father's eyes and he asked him the most important question that a Muslim can ask. He said, Father, Father, tell me the way of salvation. 
How can I know if God will accept my deeds? You know, deeds, your deen, as they would say in, in Arabic. Have I been good enough? Have I done enough good stuff? Have I prayed enough prayers? Have I kept enough fasts? Have I done all the requirements of the law so that it somehow overcomes all the other stuff that I've been doing that makes me unworthy? And the father looked at him and sadly shook his head and he said, I don't know. But talk to the one who comes after me. So then he vanishes. So Syed is waiting. Who's coming next? And immediately another man appears in his dream. Now this man... Uh, died before he was born but he recognized him from photographs that he'd seen and he was very recognizable because it was his grandfather and his grandfather was the first man in their village to make the Hajj or the pilgrimage to Mecca so because of that he was allowed to dye his big bushy white beard red with henna as a sign of being a Haji so he sees this guy with a red beard and he knows ah it's grandfather. So surely the most religious man in the village's history would know the way of salvation. So once again, he got on his knees and he touched his grandfather's feet. And he said, Grandfather, Grandfather, tell me the way of salvation. How can I know if God will accept my deeds? And the grandfather also sadly shook his head and he said, I don't know. But talk to the one who comes after me. And then he vanishes. Well, who's coming next? Who's more religious than grandfather? Well, then a third man appeared in his dream. And I don't know how my Muslim friends recognize this guy when they meet him in a dream, but they always do. It was Hajjat Isa Masih. It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And once again, Sayyid fell to his knees and he touched the feet of Jesus. And then he looked up into Jesus' eyes and he said, Isa, Isa. Jesus, Jesus, tell me the way of salvation. How can I know if God will accept my deeds? And Jesus said to him, I will show you the way of salvation. But first, you must go to the missionary in Kaliakor and ask him what Matthew 1.21 says. So he says to me, what does Matthew 1.21 say? Mind you, this guy's never seen a Bible. He has no idea what Matthew is. He doesn't know what 1.21 says. So we looked it up. I didn't have it memorized then. Uh, I do now, just in case it happens again. Uh, and we looked at the passage, and you know, it, it's the story of the angel coming to Joseph. And the angel says to him, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This was the exact answer to Said's question. And I basically, from that passage, preached the gospel to him. And I said, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with your deeds because by the works of the flesh shall no, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. You can't get to God by your good deeds. You can only come to him through the cross of Jesus Christ whereby he has made perfect atonement for your sins. And through him you can receive eternal assured salvation. And Sayyid came to faith the same day and became the leader of our works in that area of Kaliakor, Bangladesh. Now, how much of this depends on the cleverness of David Cashin? Well, really nothing. Yes, I did have to learn the language. Yes, I needed to know how to share the gospel. But the only thing I did right was being where God called me to be. And God was the one who opened the door through a dream of salvation for Muslims. 
how does that apply to us in Orangeburg today? Um, let's move on to our next uh, slide. And um, let me just ask you the question, where is your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria? Where are the places that you have to step out in faith to serve the Lord? Um, I sometimes think ministry to foster kids. That's a pretty powerful thing to do, pretty challenging. What would be involved in taking small steps of faith to do that? I think about people who are convicts who've just gotten out of prison. I do prison ministry. I've been doing that for 10 years. Uh, in the last 10 years at CIU's program in uh, Kirkland Penitentiary, we've seen 30,000 decisions for Christ. 30,000. I'm not kidding. Now, what happens to those people when they get out of prison? Uh, who picks up on the guys who are dropped off in Orangeburg with $10 in their pocket and no place to go and no job? Anybody here interested? How about some other kinds of, of ministry situations? You got any trailer parks around here? Tonight I'm going to be talking about a Hispanic trailer park and asking the question, what would it take for Christians to make a step of faith to start a Sunday school in a trailer park? You see, for Peter, reaching out to Cornelius was a huge step for the church, but it had to be done in a series of baby steps where God, through means of amazing uh, supernatural dreams, visions, revelations moves Peter to the place where this amazing new open door arrives. And I think as we talk about missions and the Great Commission, we start at our Jerusalem. We start in Orangeburg. We start in South Carolina. What steps of faith does God want you to take here? And then eventually it brings us to our Gentiles. Now, who are our Gentiles? Well, there are lots of them that we could talk about, but I love to talk about Muslims, Muslims coming to Jesus. And by the way, I put our old friend Osama bin Laden up there. Now you probably say, well, he's not our friend. He's a mass murderer. Well, that's true, but he's also a proto-evangelist. What do I mean by that? Well, he's a guy that God is using to turn Muslims to Jesus. And by the way, the same thing was true of the Ayatollah Khomeini, same thing was also true of the present Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of Dawla Islamiyya, you know, the Islamic State. Because these people are following Muhammad and don't let anybody tell you that what they're doing has nothing to do with Islam because that's absolutely untrue. They are excellent followers of the Prophet. I have a book on this subject, Muhammad and the Prophet, People of the Book. If you're interested, see me outside. I have other copies of it. Um, and you can read through that and discover that these guys are doing exactly what Muhammad said to do. Now, some people are getting radicalized, but there's an even larger group that have had it with this, had it with Islam. They're looking for a way out. Let me give you one final example uh, from this past week. Uh, well, sort of two stories that kind of meld together. One is, uh, I was visiting with a Swedish journalist in Atlanta this past Thursday talking about the emerging Iranian background church in Sweden. About 
of the uh, Iranian population in Sweden, that's about 10,000 people, are now baptized members of Christian churches. It's one of the largest people movements among Muslims in the world today. And it's growing by leaps and bounds. And as the Swedish journalist was asking me about this and also telling me some stories, I had a story from this week to tell him. Because my daughter-in-law and my son, uh, who live in Sweden, had run into this Iranian couple and invited them to church and were surprised to find that they really wanted to go to church with them. Oh, and here's an interesting little fact. In Europe today, you want to know the number one way that Muslims begin their journey to Jesus? This is going to blow all your preconceived notions. It's that someone invites them to church. Period. Someone invite For all of us who've spent years thinking we need huge, complicated strategies with all kinds of very clever ways of how you do this, and 80, 70 to 80 percent of the Muslims in Europe are coming to faith because someone invites them to church. It is as simple as that. And my son and daughter-in-law experienced that this week because they took the couple to church and they knew that the Iranian man was actually an ir- religious Iranian. He'd just come from Iran. He had a full bushy beard and he, you know, so it kind of mystified them that he would go to church with them. So they asked him why. And he said, well, you know, when I first came to Sweden, uh, I travel around and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing my education uh, here in Vesteros. But uh, about three months ago, I went to uh, Örebro for a conference. And I was there from Friday through Sunday. Friday afternoon, uh, I decided I, I should go to a mosque. Because, you know, it's, it's there Sunday, Friday, I should go to the mosque. So he went to the Örebro Mosque which, by the way, is a radical mosque. It has sent 25 fighters to fight with the Islamic State in Syria. And as you know, uh, the Dawla Islamiya people really don't like Shia Muslims. So this Shia Muslim, unsuspecting, goes into this radical Sunni mosque. He sits in, in time to hear the imam preaching about the horrific monstrosity of the Shia murtads, which is apostates, and how they should be eradicated. And he's sitting there shivering in his boots because it's like, if they figure out that I'm a Shia, I might not get out if you're alive. And so he figures out a way to extricate himself from that mosque. And after he gets out the door, he says to himself, I will never darken the door of a mosque ever again. And he wanders in this daze of what now is my faith and what now is my walk with God? Who is God? What's... And in that context, he runs into my son and daughter-in-law who invite him to church. And he's, uh, he hasn't made a full commitment to Jesus yet, but he's attending Bible study and he and his wife and their kids are part of this church uh, in Vestados. Remarkable things are happening I want to finish with one final story, and then I'm going to give you a challenge. Uh, The Swedish journalist had a story for me. Uh, He said, you know, uh, we have an Iranian Muslim background church that meets in our church in Gothenburg. Would you like to know how it got started? I said, yeah, that would be interesting. Well, he said, um, 
you know, about seven years ago, the government decided that the Iranian leftists who had applied for political asylum should not be granted asylum in Sweden because there really isn't any danger to them. Now, that, that of course, was nonsense. There was great danger for leftists. They were essentially communists. And uh, so the government was going to throw them out of the country and send them, forcibly eject them back to Iran, which was probably a death sentence. Well, these Iranians are looking for a way to make some sort of a manifestation, so they decide that they're going to hunger strike, but they need to do it in some kind of a public place. So they wander into the Pentecostal church on one of the main streets in Gothenburg, and they ask the elders of that church, "Uh, would you mind if we did a public hunger strike in your foyer? How many churches would say yes to that? Not many. But you know, the Swedish church has a long history of caring for uh, brokenness, for dealing with the poor, for helping alcoholics, for working with convicts. And so this Swedish church said, yeah, we'll let you do this. Now, it it became a circus, of course. You got two dozen uh, communist Iranian uh, Muslims Hunger striking in the foyer, and of course the leftist press, all press in Sweden is leftist, there's no such thing as rightist press, it's all just gradations of left, uh, and of course the Swedish press is all there, you know, taking pictures, and this is, you know, you know, hunger strike and all the rest of that. He said that was the starting point, that these communists came into the church and met the love of Christ. We now have a congregation of 500 converted Muslims who have a Persian language service in our church, and they're also integrated with the church at large. That came out of a hunger strike in the foyer. Friends, it's a new day. Uh, Here's my challenge to you. Some Muslim groups today are so open that if you share the gospel with them, you have a 50-50 chance of leading them to Christ. It has reached that level of openness because of the proto-evangelists, because of the Ayatollah Khomeini's, because of the Osama bin Laden's, because of the Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi's. So, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Where do you stand in that progression? Here's my challenge for today. It's Sunday. Um, Here's what I'd like you to do. And I know you're busy. We're all freaked out busy. I'm freaked out busy. I'd like you to take a half hour today in the afternoon, some point where you can get away from the frenetic pace of our lives. Hey, no football game today. Okay? So I know I, I rooted for Clemson too. My youngest son gra- you know, graduated from Clemson and he and his wife are the ones working with this Iranian couple. Anyway, we got some free time this afternoon. I'd like you to go home today and take a half hour to pray and ask God what he would want you to do to obey the Great Commission. Half hour. Meditate with a Bible on your lap. Pray and say, God, what does the Great Commission mean for me? What do you want me to do? You might be an older person and you're saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm 70, I'm retired, what, what can I do at this point? Do you know we have uh, retirees who are witnessing to people in Mecca? What? Did you know that you can actually, through pen pal clubs, you can, uh, you can reach people in Mecca? 
have a conversation with them, share the gospel with them. I had a couple of students who are doing that with 20 different Iranian, excuse me, uh, Arab Muslim people in the city of Mecca. You want to do that? You can do that from your living room if you want. And anybody of any age, in fact, the older you are, the better it is. The opportunities are everywhere. So friends, here's my final challenge. Take a half hour as a first little baby step of faith and ask the Lord, what would you have me do? Can you, can you agree to do that today? Take a half hour, pray with a Bible on your lap and say, Lord, what kind of baby step could I take to really help to fulfill your final commission to us as a church? Let's pray. God, I thank you for...